Hello and welcome to the next episode of Conversations, hot on the heels of our last episode. As always, we aim to bring you interesting discussion with a range of investment specialists. Today's expert is Ed Cole, Managing Director of Discretionary Investments and Co-Portfolio Manager of Equity Solutions at MAN GLG. In conversation with our CEO, Damien McIntyre, Ed will share his perspective on the macroeconomic themes impacting our world and more importantly, the investment environment today and into 2024. Before I hand over, I need to read this important notice. The information contained in this podcast is general and does not consider your objectives, financial situations or needs. The information and views contained in this update reflect, as of the date of recording, the current opinions of the participants and are subject to change without notice. Before making an investment decision in relation to a fund, investors should consider the appropriateness of this information in regard to their own objectives, financial situation and needs. Read and consider both the product disclosure statement and the additional information. GSFM Responsible Entity Services has produced a target market determination in relation to all of the GSFM funds. The TMD sets out the class of persons who comprise the target market for the various funds, which can be downloaded from our website. This podcast was recorded on Monday the 13th of November 2023. Damo and Ed, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Tracy, and welcome everyone to Silver Linings, our podcast series. As Tracy mentioned, the objective of the, the series really is to have a series of conversations with our partners and in particular senior portfolio managers and the like within our partners, really just to pick their brains to pass their insights onto you, which we hope in turn will be useful to you in your discussions with your clients, but equally useful to you in, in terms of how you're thinking about the markets. So so with that in mind, what I might do at this point in time is welcome Ed Cole to the podcast. And Ed, firstly, if you could just tell me a little bit about your background and then secondly, your role at MAN. And then lastly, what brings you to Australia? Yeah, so my background is, it's lucky you can't see me because I, I look like I'm about 15, but I'm, I'm actually been in uh, financial services now for nearly 25 years. You wouldn't believe me if we were on screen. I started in the early 2000s on the sell side. I was an equity strategist covering emerging markets, moved just before the GFC to the buy side doing emerging markets, which I did in long only and multi-asset funds until about 2018. I've been at MAN for nearly nine Nine years. I started there running an emerging market equity fund. Uh, and then since 2018, I've moved over to, well, I now manage the multi-manager hedge fund platform, which is where we allocate client capital into internal strategies uh, in market neutral space. And I do various other things as well. So that's sort of me in a nutshell and why I'm here. Well, MAN has a, a pretty big business here, pretty big business on the sales and distribution side. And we have our client conference for Australian institutional clients tomorrow, Tuesday the 14th in Sydney. And then I'm lucky enough to be presenting on Wednesday at another conference, I think with you guys uh, inside Network on Wednesday in Sydney and then back to London. Right. Certainly a big week for you. So I, I will think I'll need a fair amount of coffee in the first couple of days just to heighten the senses and keep you on your game. But it looks like you've got a pretty full agenda anyway. 
Yeah, um, luckily, there's no cricket for me to get back for next weekend. So uh, <laughs> I don't need my wits about me when I get back to uh, to England. Yes, it has been an unfortunate campaign for England in, in India. But I was listening to the, the CEO of ECB this morning who was saying that he made the Red Bull game his priority and the 50-50 game hasn't been a priority. And, and I think given that there weren't many warm-up games played, that's probably where we led to. Anyway, well, that's that, that's <laughs> kind, of, kind of you to say, if it was the other way around, it's not what I'd be thinking, but uh. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so I wonder if I could just start with you know, where we are today in financial markets. And really, the, the big story, and indeed what's created a lot of market volatility, has been interest rates and their relationship with inflation. And it's dominated the markets really for, you could say, from January of 2022. Where's your thinking? Do you think that we're nearer to the end of this? Or are you thinking this is likely to continue with heightened sensitivity to interest rates and resulting volatility you know, well into 2024? So I think I could probably slightly reframe that and say that actually inflation and interest rates has dominated everything, not for the last two years, but for the last 30 years. Since, since Volcker in the early 80s US, we've been on this consistent downward inflation path. We've been in this environment where interest rates and inflation just trended consistently lower. And it's led to a financialization of everything. You know, money's become freer and freer. And central bank intervention in a world of very little inflationary risk has always had the tendency culminating in COVID to get bigger and bigger, to be, for there to be no frontier really that central banks were afraid of exploring. And they've been able to do that because if you think about, I mean, we always think about the US. I sit in the UK, you guys are here, but but the US obviously is the world's largest economy. It's the reserve currency and the Fed tends to lead the world on monetary policy. And if you think about their mandate, which inflation and employment, for the last 30 years, they've never really had to worry about the inflation side of it, right? So every time you've had a crisis, they've never worried about inflation. They've always worried about defending employment. And we've just since COVID flipped that on its head. The world today, the Western world today, G7, G8, call it whatever you will, but developed economies are in a world today where actually employment's fine, right? It's everyone really who wants a job can get a job. For the first time in any of our lifetimes professionally, central bankers now have to worry about the other thing. They're not worried about employment, they're worried about inflation. And so I think the, the question it poses is, is this inflationary environment a flash in the pan? Or is it something that is going to sustain. And I think, I don't, of course, know the answer to that. But what we can see is that historically, inflation comes in waves. It's very hard to stamp out once you've, you know, once it's started, you can see things happening today in major economies where, you know, kind of unionized labor is is starting to extract pay demands, which are, you know, really extraordinary, like the auto workers in the US. And these things tend to build on themselves. So it's possible that, that there are stimuli now for inflation that we haven't had before. You can throw into that global trade fragmentation, relocation of supply chains, all these things. And I think it has, if it sustains, it has dramatic implications for financial markets. We're starting to see those now already. And I'll talk about that in a moment if you're interested. But it, in big terms, start if you think that that one stable variable assumption that we've all based everything on for the last 30 years, which is that inflation would be low and interest rates would be low. If you take that away, there's a whole world of implications which we haven't really had to think about and we now are having to think about. 
It's really interesting to reflect on those comments, but but also to think about labor arbitrage. You mentioned briefly this concept of onshoring, where the, the US, for example, amongst others, are looking to bring manufacturing, for example, back to their home countries. And whether that's in response to China or other forces, that's not for this conversation. It's interesting, even though governments may well be focused on onshoring, in the listed market, the objective of, of the CEO is, is to maximize his resources. If that's done by achieving a labor and price arbitrage in Asia, free, well, they're going to continue to do that, aren't they? Yes, I think they will. But I think the, of course, I mean, the, you know, you're absolutely right. The CEO's role is to allocate resources effectively and to make the highest return on capital they can on the resources they allocate. And that isn't going to change. But I think what COVID did show us was that the, you know, through various different parts of supply chains that were disrupted was if you take away the availability of things, then cost becomes secondary, right? If you think about what happened, probably the the order of things started with semiconductors back in, gosh, it's funny how time stretches and shrinks through the COVID period, but it may even been as early as 2020 that there was disruption in the semiconductor supply chain. And the response to that by businesses that couldn't get the components they needed because they were stuck on ships or because the fabs weren't making them was to start doubling or triple ordering. That's obviously not cost effective at all. So I think that you start to move away from questions about margin towards questions of, you know, maintaining operations. And that does change things a little bit. The other angle, of course, in that the other COVID disruption, which started during COVID and then obviously became a geopolitical issue, but was energy in Europe in particular, but actually started, I think, summer 2021, not here in Australia, but here in this region, summer 2021, there was a real physical energy shortage in the world. The developed economies were coming back online after COVID. There, China was seeing a, a real shortage of physical energy. The hydroelectric component was down based on limited water supply. And they started ordering up, you know, consuming much more coal and then gas and LNG. And even before the conflict in Ukraine, energy prices were soaring based on a lack of availability. So I think you're right. In again, in a normal world, I think you're absolutely right. There are questions now about supply chain resilience that mean that priorities perhaps shift a little bit towards thinking about whether you can ensure that your business is able to continue. Yes, of course. It's an enormous picture when you examine all the component parts. The other thing, just if I could jump back in on that, because there was some extraordinary data earlier this year. So we all know that US government has become very stimulative in this particular theme in in reshoring. And so they've got the CHIPS Act and they've got the Inflation Reduction Act. The impact of those is is extraordinary. We were looking at some of the data in the second quarter of this year. So, you know, at a point where the ISM Manufacturing Survey, which is one of the monthly high frequency PMI type surveys in the US, and that was squarely in recessionary territory. The manufacturing sector was having a pretty rough time. And the construction activity in manufacturing facilities was up over 100% year on year. And I don't know for sure that this was related to the stimulus from the Inflation Reduction Act, but you could clearly see labor tightness in manufacturing construction was was extraordinary. And it, it seems like when governments give you something close to a blank check, almost doesn't matter what the economic conditions are like. And the irony of that being that this, while this is in the long run intended to be an inflation reduction, act in the short run it has been enormously highly inflationary yeah Yeah. well politicians aren't the best economists i'm afraid well 
And some economists are the best economists, but that, that's another, another discussion. Coming back to the Fed really has changed its tone in recent times. You know, once, once upon a time, they were quite dovish on the direction of rates. Now they're very hawkish. How do you see the Fed's messaging you know, rolling out in the months and quarters to come? Yeah, so I think it comes back to that first point I made, which is the calculus has shifted that, you know, where in previous cycles worried about was defending employment today, all you worry about is runaway inflation. And I think that means that where in the past markets have had this Pavlovian response, which is to know the Fed will come to the rescue and that other central banks will follow the RBA here, the BOE, where I am, the ECB, all of them, they all move in unison. I think that the balance has changed. And actually, it's fascinating what's happening in markets. Because I, I think I, I've been sort of thinking now for a few months that really over the last 18 months, there's been an obsession in the way interest rate futures are priced that seems to reveal that there's this tendency, this desire to want to see peaks in things and assume that once you hit the peak, that everything will normalize very quickly back down again. So you roll back a year and there was that soft inflation print in the US in November last year, which the market cheered enormously as the kind of, yeah, that's the confirmation inflation's finished. You know, we can now price normalization of inflation. Well, guess what? It hasn't normalized. It's come down, but it hasn't normalized. And then since, since sort of second quarter of this year, there's been a similar obsession about trying to price the peak in interest rates and then to assume that it would just come back down again. There'd been this mean reversion and markets have been really trying to price that in interest rate futures and desperately trying to price it in equities. And the Fed keeps saying it's not what we're going to do. And actually, you know, this, I think that it's important that investors stop trying to think about the direction and start trying to get their head around what higher for longer means, because that I think is the world we're in today. My impression is, and from all the Fed watchers we talk to, Jerome Powell does not want to be the central bank governor that is written up in the history books as the guy who let inflation take hold after COVID. There was one central bank governor in history in the US who did that. His name was Arthur, Arthur Burns. Allegedly, he's the guy who no one, whose portrait no one looks at when they're in the FOMC voting room. <laughs> He's the guy that got it wrong. No one wants to be Arthur Burns. Everyone wants to be Paul Volcker. And Powell's got two years left in political allegiance, really. And what we hear and what makes sense of the comments he says today and what will matter to central bankers everywhere in the world, because in the end, every developed market central banker has to have an eye on their currency. While the Fed's still in tightening mode, then your currency's going to go and then you're going to import a load of inflation as well, which is what we've had going on in the UK. So I think, yeah, we have to start working out what higher for longer means rather than trying to assume that once we've hit the peak, that we're just going to normalize straight back down again. And the really interesting thing in that is that since about August, and again, apologies for always talking about US equity markets, but they're the biggest and most liquid and they dominate. Since August, actually, we've started to see real cracks in the equity markets as they start to price higher for longer. And I guess you could put that in a few different categories. So the most rate sensitive companies, so you could kind of say number one of those categories is companies that have to refinance their debt in short order. And those companies have definitely started quite underperformed quite materially. That's a reflection of the fact that they're moving from a debt service cost of say two to a debt service cost of seven. So that's a big impact on, on earnings and financial resilience. The second category is companies that are kind of really long duration. So companies that where they're really growthy companies and all the cash flow and the earnings is set way out in the future. And those companies are very sensitive to what happens to bond yields because, you know, that's the discount rate that you value them on. And those companies have been under enormous pressure as well. You know, some of them being 
pre-profit technology companies that, that still trade on crazy muscles. And then the third category is what we call bond proxies. And those are companies with able cash flows. So things like utilities or consumer staples, you know, they, they're almost bond-like, right? They, you know every year normally they're going to give you a, a dividend that's quite like a bonds coupon. And they're consequently, they trade a bit like bonds. So when bonds sell off, so do these stocks. But all three of these categories have been pummeled by this realization that we're in a higher for longer world. And I think what gets starts to get really interesting is, is that that's been indiscriminate and that creates a lot of opportunity, right? If some of those companies are very, very weak, companies that are, that are highly indebted and have to refinance higher, they're weak companies. Companies without any cash flow or any profit, they're weak companies. Companies that have very stable cash flows, but just are a bit sensitive to bond yields are actually quite interesting companies to look at once they get sold off as aggressively as they have. So higher for longer is starting to be priced in. It's been indiscriminate to start with. We think it's creating a pretty rich stock picking opportunity, actually, and particularly one where if the economy in the US and I'm afraid everywhere else starts to slow, which seems to be what's happening, then trying to pick up defensive companies with stable cash flows looks like a really sensible thing to be doing. Interesting observation. Now, with respect to previously, there was a strong correlation between equities and bonds as rates went to zero and negative in Europe and Japan in, in some cases. Money was for free and equities went to the moon. That correlation's gone now, don't you think? Well, it's a fascinating thing because you're absolutely right. Over the long run, bonds rallied a lot and equities rallied a lot. But the incredible thing is when you break the correlation down into short-term periods, the actual correlation was negative. And what that means is that on during periods of stress, bonds were an amazing diversifier and you know they would help protect you against the losses in equities. Now, some of my colleagues have done some really excellent work on this and they found that typically when you move from a low inflationary regime to a high inflationary regime, the correlation between stocks and bonds goes positive. And that means that you don't get that diversification benefit. Now, what does that mean for ordinary people? That's 60-40, right? Yep. We've all learned is own stocks and own bonds. Yes, they both go up. They've both gone up over the long run. So both sides of your portfolio have worked. But in the short run, they've actually helped manage the volatility of, of equity beta. And the problem is, if you go into a positive stock bond correlation world, which is where we are today, right? The direction of the market's perception of where rates is going is driving everything in equities and bonds. If you move into that world, then what you're going to have, and this is one of the things I'm going to talk about on Wednesday with Inside Network, but what you're likely to see then is that you have no natural diversification benefit in your portfolio. So during good periods, bonds will do very well and equities will do very well and your returns will look fantastic. And then during bad periods, and 2022 was probably a bit of a prelude for this, during bad periods, both of them do badly. I think I'm right that you know, US government bonds last year, 2022, were down mid-teens and equities the same. That's a disaster. So the, the danger is that we've, and this is a bit what I was saying about that natural assumption that we've all grown used to, that this one single variable would be stable and it isn't anymore. And so I think the danger for the next cycle is if we're in a world where inflation is higher and more volatile and stock population turns more durably positive, then we need to start thinking pretty seriously about what you should be doing to protect your capital. Traditional beta equities offsets your other big traditional beta fixed income. You're going to need to think creatively about what your diversifiers are. Can I pose a devil's advocate question? If you like, I, I want to bring it to trend investment. As we've discussed, what we had for a long period of time was interest rates fell, stocks
stocks rallied. So strong correlation. Now we're in this period where inflation is pushing interest rates higher. And equally, self-fulfilling prophecies fascinate me. There was there's this constant conversation about the US 10-year and 5%. And yeah. surprise, surprise, if it didn't hit five, it, you know, it got horribly close. Yeah. So in a trend world, and given that the market is reacting on news really from meeting to meeting and inflation print to inflation print, how does a trend strategy, generally speaking, cope with that? We should get one of my colleagues from that part of the business to answer that question more properly because I'm I'm in another side of the business. But what I would say is I think they point to is that they trade such a broad range of markets. So there's always something trending, right? It's the yeah. breadth that is your opportunity. It's not loading all your bets into one thing. And you can find that, yes, you're right, there's volatility in, you know, in interest rates, but commodities might be doing something else altogether. So the trick there is to have breadth and I guess to have the ability to understand the trends better than your competitors. But without wanting to dodge that one too much. That's probably one for my colleagues. So what I would say about trend is if you think, again, what I've just been saying about 60-40, and again, this is one of the things I'm going to talk about on Wednesday. So 60-40 didn't really exist until, I guess, the sort of the 2000s. It wasn't until we understood so well that you had these two natural diversifiers that people started to build financial products that exploited that. We did, one of my colleagues did a really interesting exercise where he kind of assumed 60-40 existed in the 70s. It, it didn't really. And and what you could see was that it did really badly in real terms. It had periods when it did well, where both bonds and equities were working. And it had periods when it did really badly, where both sides lost at the same time. And in the end, over the course of about 15 years from the late 60s through to the very or 13 years to the very 80s, it, it didn't beat inflation. What we simulated was putting an allocation to trend in there, multi-asset trend, and putting an allocation to equity market neutral in there. And because those things are diversifiers, because they have their own returns, and those returns act in different ways versus traditional asset classes. They lift the outcome of your portfolio enormously. So, you know, this is a bit what I mean about that value of thinking, starting to think that if the things we've always assumed were going to remain forever, no longer remain forever, we have to start thinking creatively about what can be a, a useful diversifier. And, and our evidence on the analysis we did is that you can take part of your allocation to traditional assets. You keep it because you're always going to want bonds and equities. You can take part of it and look at putting it into things that really are big diversifiers uh, and your outcome ends up being quite materially different. Right. We were talking before about market volatility and, you know, whilst it's painful at the time, it always creates opportunities and the dispersion returns in sectors and individual names can be quite dramatic and profitable once the market readjusts. So tell me, with through this recent bout of volatility, are there any particular sectors that catch your eye? Yeah, I mean, great question. And I think, uh, so I mentioned before, you've had these sort of three buckets of things that are rate sensitive. And the one that, that we started to look at thinking there was real opportunity there was the what I call bond proxies. Yep. So companies, now not all bond proxies are the sorts of things you want to buy. I mean, if you're buying a utility with a weak balance sheet or a bad regulatory regime, you not going to be anywhere near it. And this is where the, the importance is in proper diligence as a stock picker. But it was very clear to us that you could start to see a bit of a case of baby out with a 
the bathwater in some utility companies, in some real estate companies. You know, real estate companies that, let's say, operate in the commercial space where, you know, people who rent large logistics facilities with big order books and clean balance sheets were just being mechanically priced down by the translation effect of bond yields and interest rates going higher. So we definitely could see some real opportunity opening up a, a few weeks ago in that space and they've bounced back pretty hard. You mentioned the 10-year at five. I think it did get to just five and then went all the way back to four and a half. And, and the outperformance of some of those solid companies that had been mechanically sold off with bonds was pretty dramatic. So I think the trick here, which you've alluded to, is that as the markets price the changing regime we're in, will get dislocated. There will be a moment where people hold things that they don't quite understand why they hold them and, and they dispose of them. And that creates opportunity. But the trick in that opportunity is to really understand, you know, really pick the wheat from the chaff. I think we're in a world probably for the next 18 months where growth momentum is generally slowing. Um, as I said, I think it's probably higher for longer. So interest rates might come a bit lower, but they're not going to come to the rescue of the economic cycle. And you're going to need companies with really resilient financial strength, really durable balance sheets, companies that can weather refinancing risk as higher interest rates kind of feed through into their cost of financing. So yeah, I think financial strength is the key. And if you can pick up companies that have been dislocated because of some sort of shift in sentiment, and they're actually the underlying fundamentals are resilient, then that's a, that's stock picking manner, really. Yes, it is. Now, your particular area of specialisation, as I understand it, is market neutral strategies. That's right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. So can you just explain in layman's term what a market neutral strategy is and how do you run a market neutral strategy? So in, in simple terms, you take $100, you invest 50 long, and then you invest 50 short, which means you borrow stock and yep. sell it short. And then you're on the hook to give that stock back to one when they want it back. That's really layman's terms, because actually one of the benefits that we have is the institutional scale we have is that actually you can take $100 and do 100 long and 100 short. Yes. And so you get some leverage in there, which means if you have skill and conviction in your skill, then your returns start to look quite interesting. What I do is work with a talented bunch of people who do things from, you know, all across the world, US, Europe, UK, Asia Pac, specialists who do risk arb, who do equity capital market activity. And I allocate capital to them and blend that into a much larger diversified strategy. Okay, so your strategy will be, is it a bit of quantitative and fundamental processes? It's mostly fundamental, but yes. I mean, look, the truth of the world today is um, very few things are just one anymore. So most of the smartest discretionary managers have really started to understand the power of building quantitative techniques into their processes as well. And so we have a range of things from old fashioned discretionary to sort of semi-systematic to all the way to systematic. So in Australia, unfortunately, market neutral strategies have small capacities. Generally speaking, managers start to get a stitch when they get to six or seven hundred million dollars. What's capacity like on uh, when you're looking at, at global markets? I think, I mean, the truth of anything with real alpha is that they're capacity constrained. You know, yes. You always want to be suspicious of, of the manager with the boasting the big numbers that doesn't have a capacity constraint because that's probably just that they've captured some type of cheap factor exposure or cheap beta that's going to mean revert on them. Uh, alphas is capacity constrained. I think generally in 
depending on the space. The US, obviously US market neutral can get much, much bigger. Um, large cap in the UK can get bigger. But ultimately, I think we recognize exactly what you're saying, which is the individual manager should not be forced to run more than high hundreds of millions of dollars of capital because it starts to erode their capacity to generate alpha. And so one of the reasons that we are interested in this multi-manager approach is because it gives you the scope to, I'm not going to say have infinite because there's no such thing. But as, as one manager in our platform is, is at capacity, we can hire more. We can add capacity to our overall by bringing in more people that do different things. And how long have you been running the multi-manager strategy again, sorry? Well, we've been doing it at uh, Man Group forever, but I've been involved in it for the last four years. Okay, okay. So given that you've been doing it for such a long period of time, you would have a very good grasp on managers in the space. Yeah, that's our job is to sort of understand, you know, what we might want to hire and how we who might fill that gap. I think I think the truth of it is that really what we're looking for, it becomes quite quantitative in a way. We tend to be sort of guided by what our current exposures look like and how we can diversify those. So I suppose the days of kind of hoping for the the rock star manager, kind of Bobby Axelrod types from billions they're kind of not really how things are anymore. Yep. It isn't about superstars. It's about finding people that very diligently exploit a niche and don't stray from what they're good at. I think one of the things of the last cycle is that lots of sort of high-flying hedge fund managers, particularly in the US, but but everywhere really, actually just levered beta. They promised you half the volatility with twice the return. And after all those blow-ups in 2022, they really gave you half the return at twice the volatility. Yeah. And yeah. so we're very, very diligent about the fact that what we're trying to do is by, by doing market neutral, we're trying to deliver alpha like true alpha. It's not easy, but we're looking for highly skilled people who very diligently exploit a niche that they've got. We have to accept, as you've already alluded to, that that's going to be capacity constrained. And when we look to hire new people and we're always looking to hire, we're trying to find someone that will bring something different to what we have today because the trick of all these things is diversification. So just generally speaking on a basis of fees, respecting that particularly that you're seeking a capacity constraint and the payoff is, of course, that you hopefully get the alpha or in more, more often than not, you get the alpha. How do you navigate the, the fee spectrum? Um, well, sadly, we do have to charge them. <laughs> um, I think there's an understanding in our world that alpha is not cheap is the truth. Obviously, if we can't deliver it, then we can't charge the fees. But we do have to charge performance fees. It's an extra extremely competitive environment in market neutral space. We try to charge fair fees. We're certainly not as expensive as some things, but these things do come with a management fee and they come with a performance fee on top of them. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to your cause on the basis that I respect that consumers should get value for money and I'm respectful of the benefit of scale. But at the same time, it's the market has to some extent become myopically focused on the number or the absolute number in fees they're paying and not the outcome. Yeah. I and think they, they don't seem to adjust. They don't seem to adjust the, they don't, they don't seem to take into consideration the outcome when arriving at the starting point. 
And I understand that. You know, I think the period we've been through since 2009 to 2000 and beginning of 2022 was one where I think I'm right in saying that from the troughs in 2009, again, sorry for this to be US centric, the troughs in 2009 to the end of 2021, I think the US equity market as the S&P gave you 19% annualized return over that period. Yeah. Nothing that anyone active could do could really, of course, there's value in, there's loads of utility in doing things that are diversifiers or that, you know, reduce your equity beta and all that stuff. But just like from my perspective as a saver or your perspective as a saver, there's nothing really that all we should have done was have our maximum exposure we possibly could to the US equity market in beta form and pay the fewest fees we possibly could for that, right? With hindsight, that was the best investments decision anyone can make. And the closest you could get to a tracker with the lowest possible fees, the better. If we come back to where we started this conversation, if the world's changed, if stock bond correlation is changing, if the returns to beta are changing because inflation is more volatile and that erodes the gains you get from multiple expansion, you know, that's a big part of what's worked is markets getting more expensive. You're going to need to buy things that help you more than just owning an ETF. And so look, it's for us as active managers to demonstrate that what we do has got value, right? What was implicit in your question or statement is that, you know, people lose sight of it, perhaps because there hasn't been that much need or the, the results haven't been that good. So the, the onus is on us to demonstrate the stuff we do is really valuable. Yes. And well, of course it is. I agree with you. The, the golden era of just being able to ride the beta train is that's done. It's really hard now to make money in financial markets because there are so many competing and volatile forces converging constantly. So manage a skill and process. I think it's a great time for active management and it really underlines its importance. And I think that, you know, hopefully through time, the results will be a persuasive argument to support why you pay the fees. I'm sure we're all in that bucket yeah uh, and, and of course we want the ultimate investor to be in that bucket too because they realize that what they've got has actually delivered them a utility and some value yeah something precisely ed i've really enjoyed our conversation i know you this is a flying visit to australia so i hope it's productive for you thank you for your time pleasure thanks very much